have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. In Matthew 16, uh, our Lord Jesus asked His disciples who the people were saying He was. They answered Him that some, some said John the Baptist, some said Elijah or Jeremiah. Maybe one of the other prophets. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him in Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You and I are not asked or called by God to build the church. Jesus builds the church. But his statement here was not meant to be taken as some sort of, you know, overall idea that technically it's really Jesus that is actually building the church. The the rest of the New Testament explains precisely how Jesus will build his church. He actually tells us the way in which he'll go about it in texts like Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 this morning. Philip Melanchthon, who was a student of Martin Luther, he wrote in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession that when Jesus said to Peter he was the rock on which Jesus would build his church, it meant the church is not built on the authority of man, but on the ministry of the confession which Peter made when he declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. So he's saying on this rock, on this ministry of me as the word, I will build my church. And that ministry is the ministry of the word, this book. Our Lord Jesus Christ creates us, saves us, baptizes us, places us like living stones into his body, grows us up into maturity until we're all made into his image by his word. Paul writes elsewhere in Colossians 1.28 of Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity depends on the content of our proclamation. Christ is here for us in the church by His Word. We don't have to cook up anything to get Him here or to get Him to dwell with us or be with us. He is here In His Word, literally. And so, the proclamation of the Word of Christ is how Jesus will present the church one day to Himself in glorious splendor, without spot or wrinkle. Through the ministry of the Word, Jesus Christ is present in His church at all times, so that His people might grow up together into His image. Let's pray, and we'll look at the passage. Father, we thank You for the time that you have given each one of us to gather in this place around what your Son has accomplished for us under the Word of the living Christ in Scripture. And so, God, I ask that this is what you would help me preach, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit for this sermon and for this hour. And, God, I pray that you would do the same for everyone that is listening and that you would enable everyone to hear and to understand and to believe by grace through faith in the Word of Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead and reigns at Your right hand. And this we ask in His name. 
Amen. We read verses 11 through 14 here of chapter 4. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So if you remember anything at all about where we were last week in verses 1 through 10, in verse 11 the text begins to get more precise about all this, about our oneness and our unity. The gifts that Jesus gave to His church by His grace in His in His victorious ascension to the Father's right hand in verses 7 through 10, that gift or those gifts were five types of clergy, for lack of a better word, in verse 11. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers. The work of the ministry in verse 12 is usually worded in the New Testament more precisely as the ministry of the Word. And so what we need to understand is that this text is set apart by its verbiage from the other texts in the Bible that do address the diversity of gifts in the whole body of Christ, like Romans 12, right? Or like 1 Corinthians 12. This is most certainly true, no question, that we have all been gifted for the sake of serving the body of Christ. And that was my explanation of verse 7 just last week. But now, I believe that's not the purpose of this language in Ephesians. So I need to ask very honestly for your forgiveness for not studying well enough, not going far enough, because it's confusing if I do that. Because here, the gifts that Jesus has given are more specific than the idea of all the gifts given to the body, and they relate directly to that proclaiming ministry of the Word from those men, God gifts for that particular service in verse 11. Now again, I want to stress in no way does this negate the priesthood of all believers in their service to Christ, not at all, or the fact that we all contribute, of course, to each other mutuals, each other's mutual upbuilding, but this text is speaking of those men called and commissioned by God through the church to the ministry of the Word. That is a major shift for me. I used to read this text very differently. Right? I used to read these five in verse 11 as uh, gift sets or personality types uh, rather than offices uh, that everyone in the church fits somewhere in one of these five categories or types of people. And so I used to read all the text much differently. I don't land there anymore. Paul doesn't speak, if you'll notice, Paul doesn't speak about the ability to become a pastor as a gift to be sought. That's not, he didn't give the gift of, you know, the ability to pastor. He gave pastors. Do you see the difference in the passage? As the um, other four on this list, they're, they're concrete gifts from Christ to the church. A pastor, for example, the shepherd, must first be called by God, absolutely, and then commissioned or ordained to the ministry by the church. These five offices are given by Jesus to the church to ready and enable it to receive the ministry of His Word in the first part of verse 12. That's what He's talking about. These five prepare the saints to receive the ministry 
of the Word. God equips the saints through the gift of these offices to do that. And we'll see that that's because of what the Word of Christ does in the church here in just a few verses. But Paul doesn't list these five offices haphazardly. In verse 11, there's a divine order that's present here in the passage. God's apostles and prophets called directly, immediately by Jesus Christ himself have already been referred to, if you remember, in the text of Ephesians, back in verse chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Look back there if you want to. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So through the ministry of the apostles, baptizing and teaching in the name of Christ in the Great Commission, the twelve and then Judas, of course, leaves, commits suicide because he betrayed Jesus, The apostles read the Psalms and understand we need to have that office replaced. And so they choose Matthias, those original 12. Then you add in Paul, these are the apostles baptizing and teaching in the name of Christ in the Great Commission as it commanded them to do. Jesus continues to be with his church through them, remember, by virtue of his word until the end of the age. As Matthew 18, 18 through 20 told us their role As apostles, very unique, what they preached and wrote and taught, that is the foundation of the church's faith. So we proclaim only what they proclaimed. We grow up on that foundation, and that foundation shape a structure, right? They're not peripheral, they shape a structure. They are shaping us, their doctrine and their proclamation. They're the ones that wrote the scriptures, of the New Testament, at least for the most part. So that, by the way, makes a very strong argument for the church's ongoing, the need of the church's ongoing fidelity to what has always been considered true, historic, orthodox Christianity. What did the church that came right out of the apostles, what did they believe? What did they teach? And then you can watch it develop over time, but splinter off into Catholicism and things Like this, but they were closer to the apostles than we are. That ought to count for something. Most of the early church's pastors and elders and things, they were disciples and students of the apostles. And so we want to be willing to listen to them. God, again, didn't merely give the gift of apostleship, apostleship. That's not what the text says. As though that office continues, he gave the gift of men that were apostles. So remember, the unity Paul has just been calling us to maintain then, in verses 1 through 6, depends on our reliance on the foundational ministry of the apostles who were sent to baptize and teach. We will not have unity and the oneness to which the Scripture calls us if we go too far from the apostles. The role of apostle was one of unique authority, right? That it doesn't continue as it was for the purpose of laying the foundation for the church. Nobody today should call themselves an apostle. The prophets here, as the commentator Thomas Winger points out, are gifts of the ascended Christ. These prophets 
meaning this most likely refers specifically to those who received direct inspiration from the Holy Spirit for the guidance of the early church in that early apostolic age. We read about them. Prophets in the New Testament like Agabus of Jerusalem or Judas Barsabbas and Silas. Philip the Evangelist had four daughters who prophesied. John, the author of Revelation, referred to as a prophet. The Evangelists on this list, they're a little harder to identify. But I think that's because, and I don't, this is not a slight, but I think it's harder for us to understand that as one of these five offices because we bring a lot of baggage into the text because of our current understanding or idea of what an evangelist is. For us, it's just somebody that's really passionate about proclaiming the gospel to lost people or someone that's very good at it or uh, somebody that preaches revivals, things like that. That's in our mind usually what an evangelist is. But this in this passage is something much more specific in context. We only see that word three times. It doesn't refer to everybody as that. We only see this word three times in the New Testament. And of course, we all are responsible to proclaim Christ to people. It's, it's Again, it's not negating that. It's talking about roles within the church, for the church. You only see the word evangelist three times in the New Testament. The biggest, when you see it to describe, used to describe Philip. Now, this is one of the seven that was chosen to be a deacon in Acts 6. This is a man who's Preaching and baptizing are prevalent throughout the book of Acts. He was enabled to do great signs, great miracles. He baptized many. That's who the New Testament saw, or that, that was how the New Testament saw evangelists. It's something just past apostles and prophets. If Philip is sort of the model, then the first one we see in chronology labeled as an evangelist, then we should see this particular role as foundational to the church also like that of apostles and prophets. It became a more common role, even you'll see it in the book of Acts develop as the ministry of the word moved out from Jerusalem, out from the apostles, but before you had elders established in local congregations or very many local congregations. It's foundational then, but it's also a ministry that transitioned the church from the apostles and prophets to the pastors and teachers. So it's very interesting, by the way, in light of that, that the writers of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called evangelists. So you can see how important that specific role would have been. The first three offices then, apostles, prophets, evangelists, they don't have an ongoing role in the church. It doesn't mean you don't have anybody today that doesn't evangelize. Again, that's not what it's saying. It's saying the office of that that we see in Scripture Apostles, prophets, evangelists do not have an ongoing role in the church. They're the first foundational and transitional gifts of people that Jesus gave in his victorious ascension to his church. That she might be built for all time on them. Since the Christ who called them is the cornerstone of that building for us in the word they proclaimed. Beloved, the closer our churches are, to the ministry of the word that we have from the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists of the New Testament, the more it is certain that we will walk in the unity described for us in verses 1 through 6. We need to know the history and the teachings then of the early church. That was also the gift of Jesus to us. Today, the pastors, the shepherds, are those that care for and lead God's people now at the local church level. 
right? As shepherds who lead the flock to still waters and green pastures of Christ for us in His Word. And then you have the teachers. They aren't joined to the office of pastor. I don't think that's the correct way to read it as, you know, pastor, teacher. Some translations actually do that. They'll hyphenate that and make it into like a hybrid. But in fact, it's very interesting that the term teacher in the New Testament is primarily a title for Jesus Christ. And Jesus told his disciples, if you remember, they were not to call each other the Jewish equivalent of the word teacher, rabbi. He said, don't call each other rabbi. Why? Because the followers of Jesus ultimately have only one teacher, who is Christ himself. Rabbis usually transmitted the teachings of the rabbis that had come before them, but also added their unique spin on it. And so each rabbi kind of added to what had been taught before. Jesus breaks that tradition to proclaim that he has the abiding office of capital T teacher in the church. Of course, all pastors in the sense are teachers, right? I'm teaching right now in this first part more than I am technically preaching. They all are in the sense that they, in the sense that they explain God's word, but the church of the apostles did identify certain people specifically as teachers and There weren't supposed to be a lot of them. In James chapter 3 verse 1, let not many of you become teachers. Remember, they didn't have Sunday school or Bible school. And it's not that those things are sinful, but they didn't have them, right? So when he's talking about teachers there, it's not, don't read it as like it's the 21st century. It isn't. Not many of you should become that, he says. In Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29, teachers, however are subordinate to the apostles and prophets, right? They, they are not foundational, they're subordinate. So many in the early church, like Polycarp, the disciple of John the Apostle, they were referred to in a lot of that literature, the patristic literature, you know, the early founders of the church. Men like that were referred to specifically as teachers. They were disciples of the apostles. So there is an office of teaching that was given to the church, but we need to see it here In a list of these five, meaning at least, at the very least, we need to take teaching the Word of God in the church way more seriously than just trying to find volunteers. We we really need to do that. This is often how churches splinter and many are led astray because you have so many teachers that might hold to so many different views. And so the development of young people from you know, infancy to adulthood may vary so drastically in what they're taught is the truth that by the time they get older, they can't define their faith. They don't know the terms. They're not sure what orthodoxy is or what these things mean. So this is or can be a major issue if we don't heed the word in this. Pastors and teachers both will only damage the church if we don't continue in the path laid down by the apostles. We need to always be pressing into their revelation, not creating our own and building on it and all of these types of things. But we find in the next verses, however, that if they are faithful to it, the church will be built up in its oneness. Do you see that? That's how it happens. That's the path to unity and oneness or realizing the gift that Christ has given us in that. Now, I know we've spent a lot of time in the first verse But I think it was necessary because it is through these ministers, past, present, and on into the church's future, that Christ is at work. Christ is at work 
to give His Word to us, to His people. The church is not only built on the foundation of Christ for us in His Word, but lives on the foundation of Christ for us in His Word. Beloved, because we are His own body. These are not just metaphors. Listen, if you would, in light of this passage, okay? Listen, if you would, to chapter 5, verses 25 through 32, which is talking, of course, about marriage. Listen to the words here. As by the time you would, we get to chapter 5, Ephesians has told us that we are the body of Christ and we are the bride of Christ. So listen to what the word is to the church in light of chapter 4 as we read these verses in 5 beginning at 25. Husbands, that's Christ. Okay, Of course, there's husbands here, but the husband of the church is Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then he quotes Genesis. Therefore, because of those truths, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, as Jesus left the heavenly father, and hold fast to his wife, as he did for us, in his death and resurrection, and the two shall become one flesh. What is Ephesians told us Jesus is doing? Building us up into one body, one man, one new man, in place of the two, his flesh, right? This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That means these gifts, these five offices, are an expression of the love of Jesus for us. So when we read earlier in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, in that beautiful passage to know the breadth and the length and the height and depth of the love of Christ for us, again, it's not this emotion of affection. It's, it's so much more than that. When the love of Christ is the love He gives to us, proves that He has for us in His life and His death and His resurrection, and also in His Word, where that love remains and is distributed to His people in the office of preaching and teaching, first by the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, today still by the pastors and teachers, if we're submitting to the Word. A saving, redeeming, washing, justifying love that literally beautifies us. That sanctifies us and washes us so that Christ can present a beautiful and glorious bride to himself. How do we become worthy of becoming the bride of Christ? He washes us beautiful. That's what he does. You and I do not do this. We don't make ourselves glorious. 
or beautiful or without blemish or stainless or holy and pure. But He does and He can and He will. When He ascended victoriously, He gave these to us to tell us this, to bind us to Himself. That is accomplished by the ministry of the Word in Christ for us in the church. Again, notice that text that Paul quotes from Genesis. Marriage is not described as the woman leaving her father and mother. Have you ever noticed that? It's the men that do that. Right? Because we imitate, this is a shadow of Christ and a shadow of redemption. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Gentlemen, when we ask a woman to marry us, and hopefully we've asked her father first if we can, because what we're doing is saying to the father, I will now, sir, with your permission, take over the care of your daughter for the rest of her life. That's because this is what Christ has done for us. He came to us, served us, loved us, protects us, cherishes us. He is beautifying us by His Word in us. And He clings to us through His Word. It's concrete. She's not just mystical and a nice idea. It's concrete. Through this I will bind you to Me. That's why men leave their fathers and mothers and hold fast to a wife so that the two become one flesh. It's to show us what Christ does to His bride by the washing of water with His Word, ideally in baptism. That's what's happening. He is washing us, cleansing us, uniting us to Himself. This is how He loves us. He lavishes grace on us, lavishes wisdom on us, lavishes love on us, In His Word and in His cleansing water. So Christ gives five offices whose ministry is centered specifically on the Word throughout the history of the church until the end of the age. And beloved, realize that each of these five titles in chapter 4 verse 11 are first and foremost describing Christ for us in them. All, all Jesus has done ultimately in His Word is give us Himself. In His gifts is give us Himself. Jesus is all five of these par excellence, right? Nobody better. He holds these offices perfectly. The Apostle, the sent one by the Father. The prophet, prophesied, promised like Moses. The evangelist of the Gospel. The good shepherd. And the teacher who reveals things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world for us. These five offices then are nothing more than the ongoing ministry of Christ Himself for us in His Word through the church. Where is Jesus in the church? Where is He? When we gather, we say, He's with us. Well, where? How do we know that? Is He just kind of a, you know ethereal or just kind of floating here? No, 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 beloved, He's... In the ministry of the Word, by those called by God and ordained by His church to proclaim it. This is the grace He gave us as gifts for all time. In verse 7, here is how He makes His church glorious. Now, what becomes evident in verse 12 is that ministers of the Word don't exist for their own sake, 
They exist for the unity and maturity of the church. Christ gave these five types of ministers of the word. First, as we've seen, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is to prepare them to receive the ministry of the word. And secondly, for building up the body of Christ. So Christ for us in the ministry of the word is what causes the church to grow. Again, church growth according to Jesus is not numbers. It's maturity. It's the development of his people increasingly into his image. Jesus is worrying about all the numbers and the building, beloved. He wants us to grow up into him. So the ministry of the word is how Jesus is doing that building work that is spoken of in chapter 2, verses 22, by which we become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God, our Father, in His Son Christ, through His Word, by His Spirit, is building His holy temple. Paul doesn't tell them to work, again, remember, to create this unity, or bring it about, or to make themselves grow. He tells them to receive the gifts of Christ given to them. Ministers of the word that can, by his gifting, give this to the church. Through his ministers, Jesus gives his word to his own body. Remember, because he loves his body, so he's giving it what is best for it. His word from our head until, in verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All We've seen all this imagery so far in Ephesians already. Now it's coming together. We've been told what we are and what He's doing. Now we're being told how He's making us into what He has made us. His Word until we grow into this one body that Christ is filling with himself. So, when Jesus Christ ascended victoriously on high to the Father's right hand and left the earth, he didn't abandon us. He didn't leave us, even though he was leaving. How does he stay? He gave us preachers and teachers who represent him insofar as they are recognized by the church. That's very important. Because any used to so my all my life my dad uh, has been a, a martial arts instructor, Taekwondo, Gracie Jiu Jitsu, all my life. He doesn't do it formally now. He still trains. Like I've said before, I'm still scared to death of him. I took it too, but I can't beat up my dad, right? We always used to laugh because there was a, a martial arts story we would go to called Century Martial Arts, S-E-N-T-R-Y in Columbus. It was on 161 in Cleveland in a little shopping center. They sold belts and pads and certificates and, every, you know, um, all kinds. of. You could have walked into that store, bought a uniform, bought a black belt, bought some trophies, and opened a school. And said, I'm a black belt, and normally a guy like will make up his own style. And so as he'll like call it by his own name, it'll be like Randy Doe or something. And you just, you know, he, he teaches, I have my own style. I don't really go with like traditional styles. I kind of have my own hybrid, you know, like Rex Kwando, if you've ever seen Napoleon Dynamite. So anybody can start a church. Anybody. Right? The, the government's not going to check your doctrine. They're not going to check to make sure your ordination is legitimate. 
So there's God through Christ seeks to protect his church through the gift of the church for pastors and teachers. So no man has the right to stand up and say, God has called me and I'm going to start my own ministry. Not without the church, you're not right or shouldn't anyway. So that needs to be kept in mind. So be wary, beloved, of those that the church is not. And again, I don't even don't worry about me in that. You don't have to. Like they have to be approved by me. No, no, they need to be approved by the church, sent by the church, if they're going to have the responsibility of teaching people the word of God. You can't just decide to do that. You know, that doesn't negate the priesthood of believers. I under the Bible knows that we're all that. But this, beloved, read a text like this. This is important. He gave us preachers and teachers who represent him. So in a sense, through them, not in the sense of like the Pope, like like that's the vicar of Christ on earth. No, no, no. But through them, he is present in his word to keep building his church his way. And according to Jesus in John 16, 7, shockingly, his abiding presence with us by his spirit in the word is better for us than his physical presence with us. That's how much value Jesus places on the spoken and now written word of Christ. That's an amazing thought. So Jesus Christ himself is still present for the church in the gift of his word. No wonder Hebrews calls it living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This word is different than every other word. We call this the only infallible authority for faith and practice in the church. Because it is. If you can't support yourself with this, then you have to submit to it. Right? This is the final say. The final say is right here on everything. So the first purpose of the ministers of the word Jesus gives to his church, according to the verses here, is to provide the saints with everything they need to be complete until they attain to the unity of their one faith. That was given in verses 1 through 6. Until they're realizing it, as they are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the ministry of the word of Christ in the gospel as the cornerstone of the whole thing. This takes the work of all five offices. Since pastors and teachers stand only and proclaim only the word of Christ given through the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. And we stand on nothing else or this will fall apart. It will not be sustained as a church. It's very easy to keep a group of people together and going and the bills paid and all that. And you can go on Facebook and Twitter and, and you know, advance your ministry. You can do all that. The Bible is saying you won't be this without the word and only the word so we must also according to the scripture have the ministry of all five offices working in the church to attain to the knowledge of the son of god in this text remember back in 3 8 proclaiming the whole counsel of god in the word is proclaiming the unsearchable riches of christ right we must also have the ministry, the work of all five offices in the church through the word to attain to mature manhood in this passage. To become that one new man Jesus is creating by abolishing the law as the means of justification back in 2.15. 
Maturity in the church then, as Jesus would define it, growth in the church as Jesus would define it, comes in no other way, no other way, but the ongoing proclamation of the word of Christ for us in the gospel. There's literally no other way. So people don't mature in the faith into the image of Christ in marriage seminars or prophecy classes, right? Those things might be very good, but that's not how we are formed into the image of Christ. We mature when Christ crucified is proclaimed. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And then we must finally have all five offices working and equipping in the church through the word to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Since we are his one body, as we were told we are in chapter 1 verse 23. Now, why? Why is he doing all this? In verse 14, so that... We may no longer, which means that's what we were when we came into the faith, so that we may no longer be children. He's talking to all adults and the children of those believers. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Not every wind that blows is correct doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Beloved, if the ministry of the word in the church is not built only on the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone through the evangelists and continuing on that same ministry, that same word through pastors and teachers, here's what will happen. We will remain immature children who are unstable and gullible to the scheming deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all the church will be is an orphanage. It knows how to take care of kids and feed them, and that's it. It doesn't know how to make families. Without that, we will not be unified. We will not be able to maintain this oneness that Christ has accomplished for us. Instead, we'll fracture into different parts and different factions and we'll be ruled by immaturity, by fleshly agendas, by whoever has the most money or the most pull or the strongest personality, right? None of those things are how Jesus is loving his church. That's a result of this happening, of us not being built on the word and trusting the word and giving ourselves instead to people to shape the church. This can happen at a worldwide scale, and it has, for the most part, a denominational scale. It's happening all over, it seems like, but even at the local congregational level. So the church needs Christ for us in his word all the time for everything that God has purposed his church on earth to be. Jesus ascended to his father, having finished the work of salvation for us. We learned in 7 through 10 so that we might give ourselves to this sitting under his word above any other goal or agenda. So the question is, can we obey this? Can we do this? No, we cannot. No. God's requirements, God's expectations are God's law to us. And in our flesh, all the law does to the flesh is accuse us and reveal our sinfulness and actually increase it. So has God said anything else? Is he saying anything else in this passage other than what we're supposed to do and supposed 
to be because that's law. That's a demand. That's a requirement. That's an obligation, an expectation. Is there anything else? Is there a promise here? Is there gospel here or is it only law? And if we don't follow it, we fall apart. He's already told us that Christ is present for us in the Word so that, in verse 14, we'll grow into the fullness of His image through the knowledge of Christ and mature beyond spiritual infancy to true unity so we know that He's with us. But the last two verses in this section reveal to us how this ministry of the Word operates as it's working, as it gets out, as it's proclaimed. Just exactly what that is. And here... We have His promise for us. That He is not just present with us, He is also active in us to do this work through His own ever-present, ever-sufficient, ever-authoritative Word. Jesus isn't standing on the sidelines cheering us. He's in us, operating us through the Word. Verses 15 and 16. Rather, so not 14, and all that bad stuff, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, again, all this language is now from Ephesians in chapters 1 through 3, is coming together now, all these images, into Christ, in verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, all of them, takes everyone, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that's a long sentence, but Christ is the, uh, the subject of all the verbs here. Alright, just that's literally true, okay? In the verse, Christ is doing all this. So notice how Paul puts these last two sentences together by way of the Spirit. First of all, beloved, we grow by speaking in verse 15. Saints grow into what Christ has called them and desires them to be by hearing speech, by hearing something. The means of growth in the body of Christ, the means of attaining unity, of attaining maturity and knowledge, and the fullness of Christ in the church is by the truth, the Word. Right? This verse does not mean speaking the truth in love, although what I'm, the example I'm about to give is, can be helpful and loving, but what the text is speaking of is not that sometimes you need to be willing to say difficult things to people because love is more important than being approved and you love them and care for them. So like, to speak the truth in love means maybe sometimes you'll need to say things like, listen, I, I, you know that I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, you know that I love you, but you really need to shower more often. I think that's as far as we take things like that, speaking the truth in love. You say something difficult to somebody because you love them. That's not what this is. That's nowhere in the text, right? Look quickly down to verse 21, okay, where Paul is continuing on the implications of this. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is where? In Jesus. So what does it mean to speak the truth in love? What is the truth we speak? It's Christ. And how do we speak it? In love. Now, again, not, okay, so I'm supposed to speak the truth in this impulse of more serious affections. No, no, no. Love has also been defined for us or described for us in Ephesians. We speak to one another out of the ongoing comprehension 
back in 318 of the breadth and length and height and depth of His love for us. Speak His truth in His love that is poured out, that is located in Him, in His cross, in the gospel. Speak Christ in Christ and you will grow up into everything I want you to be. So instead of trusting anything that comes from our flesh or from the world to accomplish God's will, we proclaim Christ in the love of Christ. And by this word and no other in verse 15, we will grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So beloved, his divine love for us in the true word of the gospel achieves in us what God purposes for us. So because we are one flesh with Jesus, do you know what's going to happen to us through his word? We are going to grow up into his image. And in verse 16, Paul says that from Christ for us, in the truth of his word, the whole body joined and held together. Now, very quickly, the whole body, those words joined and held together, those are actions happening to us. Do you see that? Somebody is joining us together. Somebody is holding us together. It's Christ. So the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, not just the five offices of proclamation, but also every member, every gifting, when each part is working properly. So when the church properly receives the gift of God's grace in the offices of the ministry of the word, And in his people, and when those men are faithful stewards, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up because it's, again, that's not us, that's the word, builds itself up. What is itself? It's built by Christ in love. So Paul is just expanding on his prayer back in the end of chapter three. Verse 16 is what Christ does for the church. It's who Christ is for the church in his word. Beloved, it's in the word where we remain, where we must remain, that we see Christ for us in the church. So, what's the worst thing a church can do? What's the biggest threat to growing up into Christ? Beloved, it's getting in the way of the promise. It's getting in the way of Christ for us, always in His Word. It's the worst thing we can do. If we insert our own words over His words, if we try to make our words equal or just as important as His words, if we substitute our power for that of Christ, Christ's, if we neglect His Word, if we doubt His Word, if we forget His Word, if we try to build what Christ has said He is building which doesn't make us his assistant, by the way. It makes us his competitor, beloved. If he's building, we aren't. We trust the promise. That's what we do. We trust him for us in his word, in the church. Now, what does the human mind, what does the flesh do? But we have to do something. We have to do something. We have to do something. That's getting in the way. The thing that we need to do is listen and believe. And look, According to the word, things that need to get done by God's perspective will get done. Sometimes a church can try to be building a hundred different things. And Jesus is saying, just do this. Trust my word. Trust my promise. I'll do the work. You stay back. You're in the way. 
You're safe. You're my wife. I love you. I'm not going anywhere. But this work is for me. I bear this burden. I provide. I give. Right? He is the husband, beloved, of this church, of his church. There are certain things we expect from a husband, biblically so and rightfully so. And there's not a better husband in the world than Christ. Let him be the husband. Stop trying to be Eve and, and, and desire his place in this marriage. We don't have it. He's the husband. He's the leader. Just like the sin of Adam infected all of us, the righteousness of Christ infects all who believe. So let Jesus lead the church. I am only a mouthpiece. And to the degree that I am anything else, that I'm pushing anything else, I am hurting you and confusing you and burdening you. And I am sinning if I do that. I love what Jacob is doing with the youth to teach them the word, get them in the word. I love what Ben is going to do with worship. Worship in the Word, by the Word. Get people in the Word. It's, it's, that, that's, that's what we want. And I'm not saying it didn't happen here in the past. I, I, I have to worry about the time I've been given, right? That's, that's all I mean by that. When a body's not growing, something is wrong, likely that it's dying, right? Or it's begun to die. I'm not worried about the numbers. My concern would be the state of our own hearts. That's going to be a lot more pressing to me than how many people are here that don't think, of course I want it to be full. I want it to be chairs in the aisles and out in the lawn and build onto the, of course I want that. That's not, I'm not patronizing you. But I, I can't, I can't do that. And you, you, you know how I, I can't do that. I don't have the charisma to do that, let alone the ability. But Christ is all five of what the church needs in perfection. God has graciously revealed to us through Christ in His Word, by His Spirit, that all we need to do is take our hands off, receive the promise, and trust that the Word will do the work in God's way, in God's time. Because it takes a long time for a kid to grow up. My precious daughter Bella is 18, and that birthday to Bella thinks... I don't have to listen to you guys anymore, and I'm in charge. And it's, you know, and it's like, no, you're, sweetheart, you are 18. You are older than you were at 17? That's about it. Right? I, I think I, I think I became a man at 27 when I decided to get married. You know, I, I don't, that's free. You don't need that. But I'm, I'm, I'm a few more sentences and I'm done. Okay, it's Father's Day. I'm hungry. You're hungry. So, it, listen, it's counterintuitive, right? So we don't, we don't add in to try to know, just listen and receive. He'll guide us. It's counterintuitive with a sense of winded grace and God's power in us for salvation make any sense at all. This isn't built on it making sense. This is grace. So rest, beloved. Rest. Trust the promise. Christ for you all the time in His Word. 